Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today is Third Wednesday Theology and we are talking about the mediator of the covenant. If you are new to this feature, on the third Wednesday of the month, we discuss a chapter from Herman Bovink's book, The Wonderful Works of God. We've been doing this for a year and a half now. Have we? We started in January 2021. Are we, half, are we halfway through? We are slightly Almost. more than halfway through. Nice. We are on today, we are on page 262, chapter 15, and this book has 550-ish pages. So nice. We've made it. While you were just wow. doing your life, we got halfway through the book. Bethany's like, feels like like we've been doing this forever. And we'll see you next year when (laughs) hopefully we're finished. Wow. (laughs) It's a two-year journey. It's a two-year journey. But our reason for doing it was twofold. One, we wanted part of what we do on this podcast to just be engaging theology. And two, we thought a fun way to do that is just to read a book that we haven't read from a theologian who comes highly regarded and sort of talk about it. And it turns out once I made that, I was like my idea because I got this book for Christmas or something. I was like, hey, let's read this together. And then Chris was like, oh yeah, I studied. I'm like a Bovink expert. Read that, been there. So Chris Emelman, our resident Bovink expert, is out for the summer on sabbatical. So you just get the rest of us who know quite a bit less <laughs> about Herman Bovink. It's B team. Bovink team. Backup. I saw Herman Bovink get a shout out from Jackie Hill Perry on Instagram. Wow. Last week, and it made me happy. Like, was it was a photo like, of his book or of yeah, him? Or? Yeah, she was just talking about how she loves Bob Inc. Awesome. And I, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was like whenever she's confused or something, she goes to Bob Inc. And I was like, I know yeah. him. Yeah. Awesome. I know him. We're tight. <laughs> Trust me, I know him. <laughs> Trust me. He's now, he's been deceased for quite some time, but he still speaks through his writing. One of our listeners uh, texted me. He was at some conference that Keller was at. And Keller was dropping Bob Inc. And he was like, see, you guys are on to something. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we were into Bob Inc. before it was cool. Before <laughs> like people were talking about him on Instagram and dropping his name at conferences. We need to make a shirt with that. We liked Bob Inc. <laughs> before it was cool. Chris does have like a profile of Bob Inc. on his wall. Like a, yeah. Like an artistic, what do you call that? Like a shadow. It's like a shadow. A sil- like a silhouette. Yeah, like a silhouette. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe at the end of Bob Inc. We should get Chris like a bust. Of Bovink. Yes. We could put it right here in the podcast table, just like have Bovink here with us. Why haven't we done that yet? Hey, some listener, instead of sending us snacks, (laughs) send us a Herman Bovink bust, okay? (laughs) Doesn't have to be bronze, just could be like plaster. Wow. Just get us a Bovink bust. Play-Doh. Hey, the mediator. This is um, a classic theological description for Jesus Christ. And it takes into account uh, Jesus's work as the one who mediates God's covenant to us. So if you've been following along on Third Wednesday Theology, Boving started very big picture talking about revelation. How do we even know that God can communicate to us? We know this because of the doctrine of revelation, and so he spent a few chapters talking about the reality that God reveals himself. Then we got to the Holy Scriptures. Then we got to the being of God and God's work in creation and providence. We got to the origin and essence and purpose of man, the reality of sin and death, Last time around, the covenant of grace. And so so he started very big picture. And now we've finally gotten to, okay, God has made a covenant of grace to redeem a people. And how does that covenant get worked out? It gets worked out through a mediator. And what I'm going to do this time around, again, is not to sort of try to summarize the whole chapter, because it's actually a relatively long chapter. 
but to try to give you listeners a sense of why Bavik is so refreshing in these areas, I, I say frequently, I really wish I would have read Bavink earlier in life because he would have helped me not get confused by a lot of other theologians. Because what has happened in sort of modern theology is you have had systematic theology, which is all about categories, you know, our doctrine of sin and our doctrine of God and our doctrine of Christ and our doctrine of scripture and so forth. And then you've had this biblical theology movement, which focuses on the storyline of scripture from Genesis to Revelation and how God's revelation unfolds organically. And these two disciplines have sort of been, they haven't really been at odds with each other, but they just haven't been reconciled in a meaningful way, super helpfully by a lot of modern theologians. And then I found this book by Bovink, and he actually does this beautifully. He's a very systematic thinker, but the way he helps us to think is just by tracing themes through the Bible. And he really brings systematic theology and biblical theology together in a rich and meaningful way. And does so in a way that also takes into account what we learn from the rest of the world, from what, what, what he calls general revelation or natural law, or what we learn by just paying attention to the world. So here's, for instance, how he begins his section on the mediator. Belief in a mediator is not peculiar to Christendom. All men and all nations live with the sense not only of the fact that they do not share in salvation— but they also all have the conviction in their heart that the salvation must be pointed out and given to them in some way or other by specific persons. The thought is generally widespread. The man cannot approach God or dwell in his presence. He requires a go-between. In all religions, therefore, mediators are found who, on the one hand, make the divine known to men, and on the other, convey the prayers and the gifts of men to the deity. Sometimes lower gods or spirits serve as such mediators, but often, too, They are humans gifted with supernatural knowledge and power and standing and a particular aura of holiness. Soothsayers or magicians, saints or priests, they point out the way which men must take to share in the favor of the deity. So I love how he's just saying, hey, this idea of a mediator is actually really common. If you study religion, you'll find that most religions have some way of human beings needing to make contact with the divine and there's someone, a priest or a soothsayer or a prophet or a being of some kind, even an angel or some lesser God who sort of like connects us in a meaningful way with the divine. He's saying this is very common. He says, Buddha and Confucius, Zarathustra and Muhammad are indeed the first confessors of the religion founded by each of them, but they are not themselves the content of such religion. Their connection with it is, in a sense, accidental and external. So he's saying, hey, all of these, if you think about what each of these religious founders did, they sort of, on behalf of human beings, talked to them and helped them make connection with the divine. And what he's saying is, they are the first confessors of these religions, but they're not the content of the religion. So if you think about how Buddhism works or how Islam works, Buddha and Muhammad are the first confessors of the religion, the one who sort of articulate the religion, but... They're not the content of the religion. They're saying, here's who God is, and here's what it would mean for you to meaningfully connect with God or with the divine. Now, here's where we get the joy of how the Christian faith is different. Bavink writes on page 263, In Christianity, however, all this is very different. Christianity stands in a very different relationship to the person of Christ than the other religions do to the persons who founded them. Jesus was not the first confessor of the religion named after his name. He was not the first and most important Christian. He occupies a wholly unique place in Christianity. He is not, in the usual sense of it, the founder of Christianity, 
but he is the Christ, the one who was sent by the Father and who founded his kingdom on earth and now extends and preserves it to the end of the ages. Christ is himself Christianity. He stands not outside of it, but inside of it. Without his name, person, and work, there is no such thing as Christianity. In one word, Christ is not the one who points the way to Christianity, but he is the way itself. He is the only true and perfect mediator between God and men. That which the various religions in their belief in a mediator have surmised and hoped, that is actually and perfectly fulfilled in Christ. So there in that statement, we have two things. We have the uniqueness of Christ and how he stands in the Christian faith. But also you have Bavink saying, Christianity is in one sense the fulfillment of all the intuitive religious longings of human beings. So there's all these religions who understand that there's some need for a mediator. And Christ is the one who actually is the only mediator between God and men. And so this, this idea that exists out there among human beings, that somehow we need someone to connect us to God. Christ fulfills that longing of human beings. He is, in fact, the one who is the perfect mediator between God and men. It seems like Bavink is saying there, Christianity is the fulfillment of what everybody else has gone looking for. Yeah, that's really what he's saying. That Christ is the, the only one who can represent us to God and represent God to us, which is what every religion kind of is hoping for and looking for in some way. And so, again, you might remember, uh, gosh, this might have been a year ago, <laughs> however long ago it was that we did a previous chapter in Bavink, but um, Genesis 1 through 11 are really telling us this story, right? In the early chapters of Genesis, before we get to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, what you have is God creating all of humanity in his image. You have that humanity being fruitful, multiplying, and spreading all over the face of the earth. You have the flood. You have Noah and his descendants. You have the Tower of Babel. And so what God is teeing up in Genesis 1 through 11 is the reality that every human being on earth was originally made for fellowship with God and carries some memory of what it is that we long for and we're made for. And so when Bavink says, yeah, you've got all these religions everywhere in the world, all these different sort of cultural expressions of various religious systems, and all of them are human beings longing in some way to make contact with the divine. And that's an echo of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11. That's God made us with a longing for him, put eternity in our hearts, as Ecclesiastes said. Um, and, and so, yeah, Christ is the one, the actual one who can actually mediate between us and God, the, the, the one mediator of the divine covenant of grace. And the, so he's, he's starting from this big picture of, Christ's uniqueness among world figures and leaders and religions. And then from there, he goes into a, a, a wonderful run of biblical theology where he basically says, hey, the scriptures have told us since the very beginning that there was going to be one who would come who would be the Messiah. And what Bavink does in a really wonderful way, and if you're new to the scriptures, this is why I really long for you to read Bavink. He just has pages and pages here where he sort of walks you through the Old Testament mm -hmm. prophecies and just says, hey, there was two themes that you saw in the Old Testament. One is of this messianic figure, this anointed one who was to come, and he sort of traces out that theme. And then he says there's also this um, theme of the kingdom of God. And so you, you have a mediator, an anointed one, a messiah, a king in the line of David, and you have this kingdom. 
And these are the two themes that sort of come together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues to say, um, this is not like, so when Jesus comes on the scene, it's not like some new thing. It's a fulfillment of what God has been setting up for centuries and generations. As I was reading this and the last chapter, which you and Chris were recording a while back or a couple weeks ago. Oh yeah. When you came and ate some cheesecake and then left. Yeah. Remember that? I might've done that. (laughs) I might've done that. Um, I don't know if there's anybody else as readable on covenantal theology yes. as these two chapters. Yes, exactly. You would know more there than me. But no. I just feel like this is a very readable understanding of covenantal yes. theology. And I want you to listen to how, so one of the concerns, especially that is prevalent in modern theology is, how do we as Christians um, not fall into anti-Semitism? Right, if we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish hopes and longings of the Old Testament, and if we read the New Testament and we hear the New Testament authors saying that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were the ones who put Jesus on the cross, who asked the Romans to crucify him, etc., there's obviously a a history in Christianity that that can lead to resentment for the Jewish people. It shouldn't lead to that, but that unfortunately it has led to that at various times in our history. And Bavink beautifully keeps us away from that by helping us see that actually what what we have in the New Testament is the fulfillment of the hopes and longings of the Old Testament in a way that that captures them up that is beautiful and fulfilling that um that Jesus is not replacing God's work in Israel but rather fulfilling God's work in and through Israel um, and so he really has a beautiful sense of the unity of the whole Bible which is what we need in order to honor all that God was doing through his people in the Old Testament, but also the shadowiness of that, the, the ways in which that was all setting us up for and preparing us for the coming of Christ. And if you read the New Testament through the lens of the apostles, they're always quoting the Old Testament and saying, well, the scriptures told us that Jesus would come and would die on the cross and would be raised from the dead three days later and that he would send out send his spirit on the nations. And right, these, these are all Old Testament scriptures that they were quoting. For instance, let me read you a section from Bavink where he reminds us sort of how we ought to read the Old Testament and why it matters that we read it this way. The salvation of Israel in the future is inseparably bound, inseparably bound up with the royal house of David, and the future king of that house is at the same time the king of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a poetic figure or philosophical concept, but is a reality, a component part of history. It comes from above, is spiritual, ideal, and nevertheless comes into being in time under a king of David's house. It is a kingdom of God, and yet it is a thoroughly human, earthly, and historical kingdom. Hence, the future kingdom of God is painted for us in prophecy, in tints and colors taken from the circumstances then extant, which are not to be taken in a literal sense, but nevertheless give a deep impression of the reality of that kingdom. It is not the image of a dream, It is actualized here on earth in history under a king of David's house. What Bavink is doing that's really important here is there are are people who say, well, if you read the Old Testament prophecies of like a king and a kingdom and land, they're very literal. They're very, you know, God is talking to David about his descendants. He's talking about literal geography in the Middle East. And if you read all of that in a way that says that's all about Jesus, you're spiritualizing it and you're Mm -hmm. dehistoricizing it and you're making it this abstract thing that sort of floats above history. Bavik is saying, no, 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 that's not at all what we're doing. What the Bible is describing is a real kingdom 
that is that has a real king who is a real descendant of the actual literal physical David. But at the same time, that earthly reality is an expression of the kingdom of God. And we have to see that these two things are coming together. You have this spiritual um, kingdom of God that is instantiated in this earthly reality that really did have actual real estate and actual throne and actual king and all these Old Testament realities to it. And that's why Jesus brings both of those together. He is divine and human. He is a real, actual, physical descendant of David and at the same time, the king of this kingdom of God. And so what Bavink helps us to see is that that we're reading the Old Testament rightly when we see it bringing those two things together, when we see there is this real historicity to it, but also that historicity instantiated in a moment in time under David is intended to be, it's intended to show us what the kingdom is actually like, right? If you just heard language of the kingdom of God and you'd never seen an earthly kingdom anywhere, you would have no idea what that meant. Mm-hmm. And so what God is doing in all his work throughout history is giving us tangible, real, concrete realities that we can sink our teeth into to say, okay, the kingdom of God is kind of like this earthly kingdom, and yet it's more than that. It's bigger than that. It's not confined to one people or one place, but it's this overarching worldwide kingdom made up of actual people, though, you know? Um, And so, again, reading Bavink will just help you be a careful theologian. It will keep you out of the ditches that sometimes people get in when they read the Bible and really get into the literal meaning or really get into the spiritual meaning and just sort of fall off, <laughs> fall off one side of the horse or the other. Bavink is very thoughtful and very clear. And I agree with you, Dusty, very readable in how he sort of builds out these concepts that are very theological, but talks about them in ways that the average person can read and go, okay, that makes sense. I think what's beautiful about this particular chapter is he keeps Christ, who is obviously the mediator of the covenant, which is the the title of the whole chapter, but he keeps Christ central throughout the whole thing, not getting into those ditches. Yes. He also, um, so (laughs) if you're, if like me, you went to seminary, you, you read Bavink and you realize that also what he's doing is picking fights without, but the average reader wouldn't know that he's doing that, but he's just sort of like very deftly working his way through all these little arguments that exist in theology where you don't have to understand that's what he's doing to read him. But when you know that that's what he's doing, you're like, ooh, he's doing that really well. Mm-hmm. He, uh, at the end of this chapter, page 279, he, he has this little, um, this little statement. This is one sentence. The contrast, which men are trying to make in modern times between the historical Jesus and the Christ of the church, is totally untenable. And then he goes on for a paragraph or two to say why he thinks it's totally untenable. What's fascinating is this is probably the most important debate in biblical studies in the last 150 years. Like he, he's, he's wading right into what is this huge controversy in academic biblical studies. And he's just saying, yeah, that's totally untenable. Let me give you two paragraphs why, and then we just keep going with my chapter. What, what started all the way back in the 1850s is this attempt by liberal scholars to sort of separate what they call the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. The Jesus of history is the real guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who actually lived, and we know that from historical records in the first century. But what, they, what these scholars say is, yeah, yeah, there was this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus of history who really was a historical figure. But this Christ is an invention of the New Testament Christians who they like took this person, Jesus, and they invented this myth that he also was God and divine and he did miracles and all. But all, none of that is actually historical and factual. That's the Christ of faith. You have to be, you have to take that on faith. Here's what we can know about Jesus from history. And so 
this has this is called the quest for the historical Jesus. It has three different iterations historically, and um, in it, it sort of like goes through these ebbs and flows, um, and has had sort of these various sort of resurgences throughout New Testament history. I think finally N.T. Wright has put the nail in the coffin of the quest for the historical Jesus, and finally said, "You guys are full of crap. Let me just <laughs> the Bible is what it is," and he did so in a way that was academically reputable, where I think he basically on their own premises put the nail in the coffin. But for a long time, when I was years ago in seminary, this was a big debate of, how, you know, they would go through, for instance, the Gospel of Matthew and say, okay, here's this statement from Jesus is from the real Jesus of Nazareth. But then this miracle is obviously added later by later redactors because this is about Jesus being divine. And we know that he didn't think he was divine. He just thought he was a normal guy. And they later on added this in. And so Bavink is basically, you know, he's just throwing in on that question in 1907 and saying, oh yeah, by the way, you guys are full of it. But he does, he does it in a way that like, he's not getting you lost in this, you know, hey, let me tell you the thing I'm speaking into here. He doesn't feel a need to inform you that this is a debate. He just says, oh yeah, by the way, if you know about that, that's untenable. Here's why. Um, so I like that he has an ability to wade into those kinds of conversations that are very academic but in a way that he doesn't feel like I need to go on this long excursus. I literally had to, in seminary, read whole books on the quest for the historical Jesus and write papers on what various scholars said about it. I mean, this is a whole theory and area. And I just like how Bavik has an ability to speak to that without you knowing that he's even doing that. I mean, it's basically parentheses yeah. in this chapter. Yeah, it's just like, you know what? Um, Jesus knew that he was divine and he was self-aware of the statements he was making and what they meant. And uh, by the way, that's actually where this whole quest has ended up a hundred years later is people going, yeah, that's true. He did. And again, it was uh, actually to the credit of some people like N.T. Wright who really did good work there. Um, there's also... Stop getting in the weeds, Bobby says. <laughs> there's also another little thing related to that called the Messianic Secret. You guys might be familiar with this wow. if you've read some commentaries on like uh, the Gospel of Luke. The Messianic Secret is that little is is scholars' shorthand for those phrases in the Gospels where Jesus says, "Hey, don't tell anybody about that." <laughs> where he like heals the leper, and he's like, don't "Hey, don't, no yeah, don't, don't tell anybody." <laughs> and they're like, "Why? Don't if he's the Messiah, them. why does he keep telling people, hey, don't tell anybody?'" And uh, like that's weird to biblical scholars because they're they're assuming if Jesus is trying to self-consciously come as the Messiah and fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies, and people are cluing into the fact that he's more than human, and they're saying, hey, it seems like you are the Messiah. And he's saying, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> that seems weird. And so there was this whole, again, these German liberal scholars developed this whole idea of the messianic secret, which was the reason Jesus said that was because he wasn't the Messiah and he, they were misunderstanding him. And he wanted, he was basically telling them, no, 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 you've got it wrong. But instead of me convincing you why you're wrong, just don't tell anybody what you just said. Basically like you're misunderstanding me. It's like a parent telling their kid, you don't need to understand why. Just don't tell anybody about that. And, <laughs> and so there's this whole thing in biblical studies of the messianic secret. And, uh, <clears throat> Bavink, Bavink says on page 284, um, it seems as if his messiahship is a secret, which may not be made public. More than once, his works put those about him onto the thought that he was the Christ, but he commanded them that they should tell no man. In fact, even toward the end of his life, by the mouth of Peter, on the way to Caesarea Philippi, he confesses him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and even then he commands them that they shall tell no one. 
And so he, he goes on to explain, why is Jesus actually doing this? So again, he's taking this whole argument about the messianic secret, and he's saying, here's why he's doing that. And the whole point that Bavik makes is, it is because most of the Jewish people in the first century, when they said the word Messiah, had a particular understanding of what that meant. And it meant the king who's going to come and deliver us from the Romans and be an earthly deliverer. And Jesus, because he was self-conscious that that was not the course that he was going to walk, asked them, he's basically saying, yes, I am the Messiah, but not the way you think I am. And so he, Bavink basically just reframes this whole conversation and says, here's what Jesus is actually doing, and here's the texts where we know that's what he's doing. And he's doing, again, excellent biblical theology, letting the Bible interpret the Bible and telling us, here's what we know about Jesus based on what Jesus himself says. And then he ends the chapter by getting us to divine sonship, by getting us back to the doctrine of the Trinity and saying, hey, when we talk about the mediator of the covenant, of course, we know that Jesus is self-conscious that he is the Messiah. He's self-conscious that he is the one who's come to mediate between God and the people of God. And the reason that he uses the name Son of God is because he actually is the divine Son. And he is aware that before he came in his human form, he existed with the Father. Um, to, put it, to use Bavink's words, Scripture teaches us that Jesus is not called the Son of God because he is the anointed King of Israel, but quite the reverse, that he has been made King by God because in an, in an entirely unique sense, he was God's Son. And he goes back into the Old Testament here and quotes for instance, Psalm 110, um, and just says, the Old Testament always spoke of this one who was a son, and yet who had this preexistence. He quotes the prologue to the Gospel of John, right? In the beginning was the Word. And he says, this is why Jesus calls himself the Son of God, not just because he's the Messiah, but because in a unique way, unlike any other being, he is in fact the Son, the Eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity. And so, he ends with a ton of quotes from the Gospel of John, <laughs> which we just preached through, so it was really fun to read all these quotes from John. There's other parts where he's quoting John without saying yeah. John. Yeah, he literally, the last paragraph of this chapter is literally just a bunch of parenthetical quotes from the Gospel of John. He's just working through the Gospel of John, kind of like we just did, and saying, here's all the reasons why Jesus, in the Gospel of John, understands that he is the Son, that the Father is his Father, and therefore that he is the only unique, only begotten Son, the Word who in the beginning was with God and was God. And so this is why you should worship Christ, because he's the mediator of the covenant. Now, this word mediator can kind of be a theological word, but if you will just read this simple little chapter from Bavink, I think what it will do is give you a much loftier, much more exalted, and much fuller picture of who is this Jesus that we worship. He's not just my personal Savior. He's not even just the one who forgives our sin or gives us new life or sets us free from bondage. But he is, in fact, the one who came to mediate God's covenant, to make God known to us and to bring us before God, who fulfills all these hopes and longings of the Old Testament, who stands in this relation that all of these other world religions are hoping for but don't have, and that has this unique capacity to mediate between God and human beings, and that's what makes him worthy of glory and worship and honor. Mm. 
That's good. I just find the this this chapter, the mediator of the covenant and the covenant of grace, the last chapter, a very uh, exhaling, safe place to be. Hmm. Uh, what I mean by that is, um, for the last I don't know couple of years, I've been thinking a lot about how humans are always looking for safety and the need for safety. We're, we come with this like hardwired desire for safety. And with that safety, this covenant, the, the, the covenant theology is where I find that safety. Hmm. And I don't know where else you find it. What do you mean by that? We are, we are safe with God. Hmm. Here's what I mean. Bavink talks about in this particular chapter that God cannot violate his covenant for it is a covenant of grace, which does not depend on the conduct of men, but rests solely in God's compassion. I don't know how, I don't know how much more safe it gets than that. You know, like I'm safe at home with God and I'm safe at home in my relationships with everybody based on my covenantal theology. Yeah. That's true and good. And until then, until I find my safety there in the mediator of the covenant in Christ alone, I'm going to just be scrambling. Hmm. So yeah, that's what I kept thinking about as we were reflecting today. Well, and as you remember, the book of Hebrews, right, talks about there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that's the obviously the biblical foundation for what Bavik is working out in this chapter. And for for those of us who love Christ but sometimes have a limited understanding and view of who Jesus is and what he came to do, um, understanding the covenant, this thing that spans from Genesis to Revelation yeah, the that, whole that underlies the whole work of God and understanding that covenant being about Jesus Christ and him coming as our mediator it helps us have this. I mean, it's it's the reason why John wrote the prologue the way he did. Mm-hmm. It's the reason why Colossians 1 is in the Bible where all of a sudden you have Paul talking about he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from all creation, right? Um, from him and through him and to him are all things, Romans 11. It's why you have these statements in the New Testament, which is this grand worship of Christ that just says, when we begin to see who he is and what he came to do and the fullness and scope of what God is doing in redeeming humanity through Jesus Christ, we can't help but be awed by the vastness and the beauty of what it is God is doing in Christ. And so um, we'll kind of end the podcast here, um, but I want to encourage you, if you're not reading along, hey, pick it up. We've got about a year left. The, what have we got? Hang on. Nine chapters left. And if not, we're reading it to Nine you, months basically. left. Yeah, and if not, we're just going to keep reading you Bob and quotes every third Wednesday. This is like uh, the book like an audible book, but better. <laughs> Except we just read little sections. Yeah. yeah. Not the and, whole thing. Explain them. Yes. I would listen to Bethany's voice reading a Herman Bobbitt <laughs> yeah. chapter. Maybe we should do like a separate audiobook podcast that's just Bethany that reads Herman Bobbitt. Yeah. I like that idea. It's like the Daily Liturgy podcast, okay. but Bobbink. The Bob. I I don't know if I would understand everything, but I'd. It'd be great. It would also be kind of long because yeah. some of these chapters are <laughs> like 40 pages. Say, like, That'd be good. Be a like few hours of listening. You like stumbled on a word and you just you just stumble on it and people stumble along with What you. was the one <laughs> yeah. we made fun of a few podcasts ago? Tetragrammaton. That's right. Tetragrammaton. Tetra- yeah. I wow. still remember it. Good job. See? I won't forget it. Boom. Love Man. it. Thanks for listening and reading, friends. We'll see you next third Wednesday. But 
more than that. See you in a few weeks for the next episode. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.